Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. I would also appreciate if you took a moment to follow it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Today's guest is Hank Garrett, one of the most amazing guests I've ever had on this podcast. (laughs) Hank was inducted into the Wrestling Hall of Fame, the Martial Arts Hall of Fame. He's received a New York Film Critics Award and Lifetime Achievement Award. Some of you old enough will know him as Officer Nicholson on the TV series Car 54, Where Are You? And pretty much everyone will know him as the postman in Three Days of the Condor with Robert Redford. He openly acknowledges Sammy Davis Jr. for helping save his life. I've known Hank for many years and am proud to call him a friend. Now he recently published an autobiography, which will be the focus of this interview. Although I will probably throw in a few questions that about his career that I'm anxious to ask as well. It is a true honor to have this opportunity to chat with you. Welcome, Hank. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, it's, um, I think it's, you know, when we first met, you came to one of our shows at the, uh, in our Ellen Herbert Theater, and um, I don't know if it was with, with um, obviously with Deanna Marie, um, now your wife, and with um, Chaplain Dove, Dove Court, I think. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, so that was like, I don't know, 10 or more years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And then um, <laughs> I've been, we've been tracking a little bit as you were, the whole journey of putting your book together, and that's why I was really anxious to be able to interview you. Um, not just because you're an amazing star in all your experience, <laughs> <laughs> but um, since this is the Writers of the Future podcast, I'm definitely interest, interested in addressing um, how it came to be that you put together a book, all the, the your journey of doing that. So from, Har- from Harlem Hoodlum to Hollywood Heavyweight. So anyway, just tell me a bit about like how your life evolved to where you decided it was important to uh, put together an autobiography. All right. Raised on the streets of Harlem, mm-hmm. 111th between Park and Lexington, my parents were immigrants uh, from the Ukraine, and I was born very late in life to them. Uh, my dad was in his 50s, and my mom was in her 40s when I was surprised. <laughs> and uh, they, they sold fruits and vegetables off a push cart and didn't have time for me. They spent 15, 16 hours a day just making enough money to to pay for food and rent. So I was on my own. Uh, At one point, I actually slept in cardboard boxes uh, on the street, and I wasn't the only one. Uh, I I was always in trouble. Uh, One of my mother's customers was the uh, mayor of Harlem, and she was crying to him that I was always in trouble. Uh, boy, was I ever. And he came to me. I was on the street corner. I was 12 years old, standing there with my fellow hoodlums, smoking cigarettes. And he came over and he looked at me. And first thing he did was knock the cigarette out of my mouth. Now, I didn't know who he was. So I said, you know, I'm going to throw a punch at him. And then these two mountains came toward me. They were two bodyguards. And I thought better of trying to throw a punch. (laughs) And uh, he said, "Uh, your mom wants me to take you out. Now, if you say to somebody in New York, I'm going to take you out, it means I'm going to kill you. Yeah. And I said, my my mother's putting a hit on me. And he said, no, stupid. (laughs) He knew me immediately. He said, have you got a suit? I said, yeah, I got a suit. And he said, uh, I want you to put a suit on tonight. But before you do, man, take a bath. Now, I hated him from the get-go. <laughs> and I put on my suit, and he took me to the Apollo Theater in Harlem. And I looked at the marquee, and it said, starring Sammy Davis Jr. And I knew the name, not well. And we didn't go into the theater. We went to the dressing rooms. And we went into Sammy Davis Jr.'s dressing room. And I sat there with my mouth open. And Sammy Davis said, so sit down, man. I sat. And he said, so you're a tough guy. 
I said, yeah, yeah, I'm a tough guy. He said, tough guys wind up with broken bones and scars. Uh, you, you're beyond that. You're either going to go to prison or you're going to die. I'm 12 years old, and I had a gun in my pocket, a 25 caliber pistol. The gun started to get heavier and heavier and heavier as he spoke. And he looked at me and he said, I'm going to get you a gig, a job. And he got me a job as a band boy with an all African-American orchestra, Lucky Melinda. And I said, what do I do? I don't play an instrument. And they said, no, 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 no. You put the music out for the different musicians. And at the end of the gig, the end of the job, you put everything back in order. I did. And uh, I never forgot, it was the Hotel Teresa in Harlem. And at the end of the gig, uh, Lucky Millender came up to me and he said, did a good job, man. And he gave me $50. And I, I, I look, he said, get yourself some new kicks, shoes. My shoes were torn to shreds. My left shoe was being held on uh, by a big rubber band that held the, the sole onto the rest of the shoe. <laughs> Next day, I went to Florsheim Shoes and bought a pair of Florsheim shoes for $15. And I gave my mother the 35 more money than she had ever seen. And it started from there. He got me a, a couple of jobs up in the Catskills watching comedians because I, I had a little bit of a comedy vent, especially when I was in trouble. So I started telling jokes to get out of it. And uh, 20 years later, I was at the Sands in Las Vegas opening for Tony Bennett. Ringside, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Peter Lawford, and Sammy Davis Jr. I'm going to start crying. Ah, after I, my performance, Frank Sinatra gave me a standing ovation. And when Frank stands up, the world <laughs> stands up. Yeah. And they all did. And they ran backstage to see Tony except for Sam. Sam walked up to me and he said, uh, this is hard for me. Uh, you look so familiar, my man. Where do I know you from? And I said, Sam, I'm the kid. You said I was going to go to prison or die. And he said, that's you? I said, yeah. We both cried, stood there sobbing. And that was the change in life for me. Mm -hmm. At one point, I, I became a police officer because I thought I could make a change. Uh, and I was still pretty much a rookie. A friend of mine was a, a comedian, and his wife was working for a gentleman named Matt Hyken, who created the Bill Go Show. Martha Ray show, and he was working on a show called Car 54, Where Are You? And they got me an audition. And I walked in, and I, I, Nat Hyken said, sit down. I sat. He looked at me, and I, honestly, just a few words. He said, you're Ed Nicholson. I said, oh, no, 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 I'm Hank Garrett. He said, just the kind of dummy I'm looking for. <laughs> he said, Nicholson is the character I want you to play on Car 54, Where Are You? And that opened the world for me. That's amazing. Yeah, it's just reading your book, there's so much, you know, like as you're telling me this stuff, okay, that's this chapter, okay, that's this chapter, that's this chapter. So I'm just, I'm, I mean, we're going to be telling you a lot more of your life's progression here, but just... Segwaying back now to the book, how long did it take you to put this together? Because this is, I mean, there's a lot of details in here, you know, and it's like, that's an amazing memory if, for one. Like, did you have life notes or is this all straight pouring from your well mind? 
There's a lady in my life. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed there is. And if you look at the book, there, there would be no book without her. Uh, I had a lot of memories, and she questioned me on everything. She said, what did you do next? And she said, how could you have done this? Uh, because at, at 16, I was wrestling uh, semi-pro, and I said, well, I couldn't get my license unless I was 21, but I was 16. So people I knew made some phone calls, and suddenly I was 10 years older. <laughs> In fact, when I did Car 54, uh, I was just 19. But according to the new records, I was 29. <laughs> so, uh, and Deanna Marie, Deanna Marie Smith, uh, she was amazing. Still is. Oh, and still is. Oh, my God. We go to places, and uh, people will look at me and say, what a beautiful woman. And I said, me? No, not you, stupid. The ladies you're standing with. I said, oh, thank you. Uh, and that this happens everywhere. Yeah. I am so blessed and how well I know it. Absolutely. Oh. Absolutely. So then she's the one that helped pick your brain and just start putting together the chronology of your life. Yes. And then you, I imagine as you went along, all of a sudden something else would bubble up and you have to go back and fill in something else as it was... So did, how long was that process? Uh, we sat, she typed, I talked. But she would stop and ask questions, mm -hmm. which opened so much for... Four years. Four years. And for example, uh, I became a professional wrestler. Mm -hmm. and I'm now in the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame due to a gentleman who passed recently who was my mentor, a guy named Gene LaBelle. Mm -hmm. He had 300 judo matches around the world and beat every champ in the world. And he was my mentor, and he was training me for the championship. Uh, but and then I was involved in a terrible automobile accident. So that was the end of my wrestling career. Uh, but I had forgotten so much about that. Mm -hmm. And Deanna Marie would say, now, wait a minute. Did you finally get your license? And I said, yes, yes. It was a little irregular, <laughs> but I got my license. And... Uh, went on from there, a car 54. And uh, I got the audition for Three Days of the Condor. Mm -hmm. And they said, you have to have martial arts experience. And I said, well, I do. Would, do you want me to demonstrate? And the, the director, Sidney Pollack, said, uh, no, no, I don't want any demonstration Save it for the movie. Well, I wound up winning the New York Film Critics Award. And recently, we were taken to Las Vegas and got a special award for uh, best fight scene in film ever. It's an amazing fight scene. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So, uh, wow. So... So she basically just continued to, to pluck all these different memories and then put together the timeline so that... Exactly. So now, these are some good words in here, in the right, in right <laughs> sequence, right order. <laughs> you know, the, the sentences all make sense and they flow from one to the next to the next. So it's... That's her. Good, yeah, because the title says Hank Garrett and Deanna Marie Smith. So, exactly. Yeah, so... Um, but the whole book is Hank and Deanna Marie. Yeah, it's 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 your life, but her editorial prowess. Yes, put it together. So, so how many years did you spend um, working on this book? 
Five years, five years. And I, I must tell you, proceeds, we take our cost. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the money goes to disabled American veterans. I started going to hospitals. I, I'm a comedian. I, I wound up being with Tony Bennett for four years. I was his opening act. And we, I paid my own way to Vietnam. A friend of mine was a lieutenant colonel with the Marine Corps. I won't mention names. He got me to train with the Marine Corps. And I told him what my plan was. I paid my own way three times and went to Vietnam. And I wanted to bring a little bit of laughter. And Frontline, <laughs> they introduced me and I stepped on to what was the stage. And I was introduced, and as soon as I was introduced and I hit that stage, a machine gun opened. And I yelled, critics! <laughs> and we all started running. <laughs> and one of the GIs said, Mr. Garrett, don't make us laugh when we're trying to get the heck out of here. <laughs> uh. Wow. So that's, um, but that's what I get also on reading the book, because it was just amazing, just, and they're, they're short chapters, there's chapters or, or sub-chapters that you got in their sections, and you have so many different parts to your life. Um, you know, there's just all these different people that in the last section, all the different people that you, that you worked with, and um, oh. it's, just, it's just fascinating. Um, and also your connections on the full spectrum of the world's people. Yes. Yeah. You had your... your um, your godfather, to, or your uncle, I guess it was, that would take care of you whenever you needed. When had, yeah, when you had oh, to, yes. When you were going to perform, was it, there was some performance you could do it uh, for um, your aunt. Or if some, somebody you were going to do a performance from, it was a, a charity fundraiser, and you were working at, this, I guess, at, at some club, and they said, no, you can't get off. So then you called your uncle, and he said, okay. So he called the owner, and then you got off, but you had to make it back before the uh your act started or else you're in deep trouble oh, and so you God. arrived just in time when you heard your name announced and you made it right on the stage and the show went on uh so many times uh amazing stories i was just it's just fascinating this stuff so but what's also fascinating is how well written it is oh thank you yeah and so it's yeah i, I, <laughs> I, I got the i got the finger pointing to anna marie which is which is, which is fine and understood um Quite frequently, uh, celebrities, when they do their biographies or autobiographies, they'll they hire somebody else totally to. Oh, do I the know. Thing. Yeah, a, uh, a very dear friend of mine. Uh, haven't. He was a close friend, and he was a ghostwriter. So that's exactly what he did. He wrote books with someone else's name. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, he was paid for that. And I thought about that, and uh, I said, no, 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 no. And Deanna Marie said, uh, look, your stories are so fascinating. Mm-hmm. You don't need anybody creating stories for you. Uh, and, and we were talking, and I met Elvis Presley, uh, how I met him. A friend of mine was Elvis Presley's opening act. And he told Elvis that I was into the martial arts and I'm in the Karate Hall of Fame. Elvis is a martial artist. And so I get a call from a gentleman named Red, who was a one of Elvis's uh, top people. And he said, uh, would you be willing to do uh, Elvis Presley the honor of sparring with him? And I said, you want me to do the honor of... I said, well, I'll, I'll give him a break. <laughs> Elvis showed up. He rented a hall at the Sands, 
And it's just for us to spar a little. He showed up. He was wearing an outfit that cost $25,000. Right leg said Elvis, left leg said Presley, spangles and sparkles, and, and there were rockets going off. <laughs> I'm there with my $1.95 outfit. <laughs> it's in shreds. And I went, oh, okay. And now Elvis comes up to me, and he called me sensei, which is teacher. Right. And I said, uh, Elvis, you don't refer to me as sensei because you and I are equal rank. He said, oh, okay, sensei. He said, uh, can I ask a favor? And I said, sure. He said, uh, sensei, please try not to hit me in the face because I've got a show to do tonight. And I said, Elvis, I've got a show to do tonight, so don't hit me in my face. And he said, Sensei, if I hit you in the face, it'll be an improvement. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, Elvis, you know I'm going to kill you. You know that absolutely. Tell your people, get the insurance out because I'm going <laughs> to. And we became friends. We sparred, and he was wonderful. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. You wouldn't think that, but that's. That's that's amazing. That was that was a surprise story in, yes. in the book. But there was a lot of surprise stories in there. So now so you spent five years putting this together. And people listening to this, I really wanted to do this because I also want you to get the idea everybody's got something special about their life. Right. And um it's not that like, oh yeah, Hank Garrett is special. He is no. special, no, no question about that. But everybody's got something special. Everybody's got a story to tell. And he was fortunate to have Deanna Marie help him to tell that story, to pull it out of him to do that. But everybody can actually tell their story, you know? Yes. Maybe you're not going to make it a big novel, a big book, but you've got something you can tell, write it for your posterity, for your family, for your kids, for whoever type thing to be able to leave your mark. So that's something that our discussing this, what we're doing right now is, I think is really important that you take advantage of this. And I mean, in that you don't have enough time. I mean, a career like Hank Garrett, if anybody didn't have enough time, it would be Hank Garrett, but yet he made the time to do this. So what was the inspiration for you to want to do the book? Uh, everyone that I've met, mm -hmm. and you're right, you're absolutely right, there's something so special about each and every person that I've met. Yeah. They don't think it's special because they experienced it. And I've seen so many people that I find fascinating because to them it's just a part of their life. Mm -hmm. To me and a lot of other people, it's outstanding. Yeah, I totally agree. Yes. And there is a book in every person that I've ever met, for sure. Yeah, and I think it's something that a person's worst critic is going to be themselves. You know, yes. pretty much is is a universal. You know, like for that very reason you just said, like, what's so special about my life? But looking in somebody else's perspective, like, I could never do what you just did, what you've done. You know how oh, you did absolutely. that. You know? And so. Um, I think for somebody who's either if you yourself want one or you know somebody who should have a book about their life, use this interview that we're doing now as an inspiration to be able to to persevere and actually push through. Five years is a lot of years to put together a book, you know, but the product is amazing. I don't remember particularly the difference between the first edition and the new edition. I remember getting your printout, the, mm -hmm. the first book. You know, you gave it to me at one of the shows in a, in a big paper envelope, you know, and uh, so I remember reading through that. I didn't read it as thoroughly as I did this one here, but reading was like, it was just fascinating. So what was the, what was the spark to make for the first edition to new edition? Well, uh, we keep mentioning Deanna Marie. She's amazing, truly. Mm -hmm. I, I, I've known her for so many years. I've had the, I have the good fortune of having this lady be my wife. She was an outstanding designer, clothing designer. 
She had a studio in London. She had a studio in New York. She had a studio here in California. I've seen her designs, and I, my mouth just dropped open. This is your stuff. And she said, yes. And I said, wow, I'd never seen anything like it. Mm -hmm. And I, as a guy, looked at it and was enthralled. Right. Wow. Uh, anyway, the book, uh, someone just wrote a treatment to be, for the book to be done as a series, a television series. Oh, really? This book here as a television yeah. series? Fascinating. Yeah, and, so, and someone else, a couple of other people are talking about doing it as a movie. But they said they didn't want to cut it as a movie because I would lose so much of the material. Yeah, it would be too. It would be totally confusing as a movie because it goes boom, 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 boom. There's so many things. Yes. Like, you know, like a machine gun, like firing with all these different aspects, all these different incidents in your life, and to narrow down. Okay, let's just take these ten. It's like that misses the whole point of your life. Yes, exactly. In fact, uh, they uh, they said that to cut two hours uh, out of it, it would leave an awful lot un unread and unsaid. Mm -hmm. So we're quite flattered. Uh, and uh, we've done a number of, of book signings. Right. And I mentioned the Sable Vets. So far, we've raised over 60000 Wow, that's amazing, with, with just with book sales. Yes. That's, that's fascinating on that. Now... Um, what were the major obstacles you had to overcome to get this book put together? Permission. We had to get permission from so many studios. Every time I mentioned a movie that I was in, I had to get Deanna Marie. would have to contact them to get permission to use either a photograph or even use any part of it. So it, it kind of halted progress. So you put it together and you had to wait like yes. six months, a year. Or exactly. Long. I got it. And then what about the the actual process of once you had the book put together, you knew what the actual pages were to actually get it typeset and um, bound and, and published? Well, we had contacted a couple of publishers. Uh, some did a terrible job, very costly. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a publicist, a gentleman by, by the name of Harlan Ball, who is an incredible publicist, and he is so helpful in yeah. finding the right people for us to contact. If it wasn't for him telling us who to call or where to go, we would still be a page one. Wow. Because you now have it. Um, so what was the procedure? Because that's something that people run into. Is like I get contact all the time. Will you publish my book? How do I publish my book? And so it's now second printing, and it's by this Red Warrior Press. That you created your own press for this? That's the Red Warrior. <laughs> yes. So it was created by Red Warrior. So you created your own yeah, press in order to absolutely. get the book published. Yes. Amazing. But I'm sure no publisher is going to agree with your terms of winning only costs and everything else going to disabled American veterans. Yes. So that was probably a major hurdle that most people would not have to, to deal with. Uh, they pay us directly and we do it with a separate account. I get it. Now, do you have, um, I'm assuming you're in, obviously you're on Amazon. Are you in and you say book signings, are you, you do um, um, obviously in bookstores. What kind of bookstores? The independents? Or? We, we haven't done many. Uh, we were with Amazon, mm -hmm. uh, and we had a bit of a problem. Uh, the uh, publisher we were with at the beginning never gave us a book count on how many were sold. Yeah. So we thought... 
God, the book is a failure. It's, it's not selling at all. We had no idea. I have done possibly hundreds of interviews. Mm -hmm. uh, and each interview that I've done has been so successful. I mean, making friends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really incredible. But it's so funny. I get a call from somebody in Kankakee who says, Hey, Hank, I'm your cousin. Oh, really? Oh, yes. Do you remember me? Uh, no. <laughs> Boy, have I got relatives now. You got relatives coming out of the eaves. So now on, um, so you've had the problem of, of just getting a publisher in the first place, and you finally solved it once, you know, you dealt with the first one, which... Um, was less than optimum by creating your own. So has that been better than having making yourself your own publisher for this? Uh, yes and no. Uh, it's a lot of work. Sure. Deanna Marie works her heart out. She really does. The first publisher we had, he was uh, in Canada, and uh, we could never get any information, how many books were sold, how many were printed, could not get the information. Uh, Amazon, we never got a, a, an actual count either. So we're having sales come directly to us, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it's uh, harlemhoodlum.com. Well, we'll definitely be promoting this, but... It's also interesting with the way that publishing is changing now. And anybody listening to this, it's not even necessarily a, a fault. Independent publishing, self-publishing is, is so popular right now because of issues like what you've just run, mm. say you run into. It. It's not something special that you've run into. It's an unfortunate thing. But there's so many people right now wanting to uh, publish books that with the number of publishers decreasing, you know, especially after the last three years with the pandemic, oh, a lot of places, yes. you know, uh, and as you've experienced also, or possibly pay, uh, experienced paper has gotten very expensive. It's gotten the lead times on getting a book printed have gone from being able to schedule something a month to two months in advance. Now it's easily at six months, unless you're a big publisher and actually have, major stockpiles of paper or existing orders that you can just pull from to be able to print your book with. Um, it's really hard right now. So um, just the parameters have changed a whole lot on, on publishing. So what you're going through right now, creating your own publishing house, I mean, that's, that's pretty creative there. And it's, it's the solution. But the fact that you've raised, you said $60,000 for a DAV? Yeah, six, uh, 61,000. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. So obviously you're getting sales and a, and a substantial amount of sales to be able to, to forward that to these disabled American um, charity. So... Um, well, oh, one other thing uh -huh. we're working on, and it's a, a place for kids, and it's called Hangster's Kids. We want to get the kids off the street. Yeah. We want to give them a place to come to. Come to us. Spend time. We'll have games. If you need homework help, we'll have that for you. You're hungry? I'll feed you. Come get off the street and come spend time with us. That's the, the kind of place that we're looking to build now. And were you going back to Harlem for that, or, or where? Uh, we, we're not sure where we're, we want to make it the most convenient place where kids are on the street. We want them off the street. Right. I spent so much of my life on the street. I was a hoodlum, did not know where I was going, did not know what to eat, didn't know where to eat, what to get, where to get food. My friend George and I, we built, we made a fire in a trash can and we threw potatoes into trash cans that were, that were on fire. And we would pull these potatoes out. That's what we lived on. 
We never had a, a meal. I remember, boy, I'm, I'm jumping around. I was walking down the street, winter, cold, and I saw a store with the windows blacked out. And I, the door was open, and people were singing and dancing. And I looked in, and a man came up to me, and he said, are you hungry, son? And I said, yeah. I said, that's my middle name. He said, come on in. It was full of people. It was gospel, singing, dancing. He said, if you're hungry, help yourself. Tons of food on huge tables. He said, you have a mom? I said, yes. He says, I'm going to pack up a bunch of food for you to take home to your mom. And I just sat there. Now I hear gospel, I start to cry. Yeah. And he said, go with God. And, and I looked at him and he said, oh, my name is Father Divine. And I said, well, thank you so much. He said, uh, you're welcome here anytime, anytime. You're hungry? I'll give you food, take home to mom. Or if you want to bring your mom. I said, my mom works all the time trying to sell fruits and vegetables. He said, uh, anybody that you know on the street, bring them. He said, if you're hungry, I'll feed you. And I never forgot that. Mm -hmm. And I want to do that with, these, with the kids, get them off the street and feed them and give them a secure place, give them a warm place. Well, that's amazing. And what's also good to anybody, again, um, listening to this, because this is a, 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 the connection I've got here for Writers of the Future with, with entering, interviewing Hank is, um, having read his book, I knew that, one, it's just an amazingly interesting story, but that um, even with all that happening, be able to put together this, um, an amazing tale of his life it's nonfiction. You know, normally I talk to people about science fiction, fantasy, alternate <laughs> history, uh, dark fantasy, and that's not what this is. This is, but what's interesting about this, and um, what I was going to bring up is like, if someone were to be able to write this and submit it to a publisher as a fiction story, they'd be thrown on their ears as this is so unreal. This is just, get get real with what you're writing. And like, um, the problem with fiction is it has to, you have to write it real because if you had something the way that real life happens, nobody would believe it. You know, the, the things that happen in life yeah. are unbelievable sometimes. Yes. Oh, yes. And so if you write it out, it's like, no. Like, you're, <laughs> you know, just these, the things that have happened to you and the, the lucky breaks, the bad breaks too that you had, but the overall, that, of course. you know, the lucky breaks outweighed the but just as a wrestler some of these things that one story of how you were um you're wrestling and the guy was caught we he had two identities and so he was wrestling himself so you had to put on his oh his yes <laughs> you're 180 he was 260 so you're holding your pants up with one hand yes and, he was a monster <laughs> twice my size and then the referee, all he was, he was on the ground because he was just laughing so hard. Yeah. Yeah. Oh God. It's like that stuff is just it's 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 unreal, but yet that is absolute reality. Yeah. You know, so that's that's an unfortunate thing about fiction. You have to make it real, even though real life is never real. Oh, I know. Yeah. So, oh. um. What has been the greatest joy that you experienced in writing this book? Spending the time with Deanna Marie, truly. Uh, she's my best friend. Mm -hmm. In fact, the best part of a day for me, at any day, is just the two of us 
having a meal together. We laugh, we carry on, just the two of us. Mm -hmm. uh, we were at a Thanksgiving party, and we just sat there. I mean, you know, we acknowledged and spoke to the other people. But the best part of it is going home, and the two of us sitting in a little dinky restaurant you know, or a coffee shop, we enjoy each other. Well, I'm glad that you like her. <laughs> so in terms of putting together the book, though, is there anything that, like, for you that was, did it provide any type of a, a closure to your life or any type of, of being able to experience this stuff and just being able to, like, okay, I, you know, you definitely had various issues growing up and you had the loss of your father and when your, when your mother passed and um, different things that happened. Um, putting it down on on paper, did it did it do something for you also? It brought back some sadness, mm -hmm. uh, not knowing who I was, because my father evidently was here illegally and adopted my took my mom's last name. She had been married once before. It, I had two half-brothers. And spending my life not knowing who I was, registering for the draft, getting married under an assumed name. I did not know it was an assumed name. It was a name that my father used. I, for the longest time, I didn't know who I was. I hope that Garrett is now registered. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm legal. <laughs> but, uh, wow. I'm enjoying life now. Mm -hmm. So much has opened in life for me. I still blush when people come up and say, oh, I remember you, blah, 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 blah. And Deanna Marie will be with me, and she'll say, my God, you're blushing. People recognize me from whatever show I've done, and I, I still don't know how to handle it. Right. Well, obviously, you've gotten by okay. <laughs> <laughs> thanks to her. <laughs> okay, thanks to her. So, um, all right, so that that's good. And I'm just, I'm just curious because there's, People write books for different reasons. Some people, you know, have a story they want to tell. Others have, um, they feel important to pass on their life's lessons. Um, they want to, for whatever reason type stuff. So I was just curious for yourself if there's any, we've, we've been poking this from different angles, but I just, people that listen to the, this podcast are, are very into being able to write and want to tell their stories. And so, this is a, a specific type of an interview that we're doing here that will ad address people who want to be able to tell a story of themselves or even telling the story of a loved one or someone that they really respect. You know, so this would be more from the perspective of like Deanna Marie making sure that your story is told and what she did to just draw your 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 memories out of you and then and then gradually piece together yes. your life. Yes. You know, so that's I mean it's fascinating, but it's something that I've not talked to somebody like this before. So it's, you know, having this done, then we'll be able to help others, you know, from here on out then that want to be able to do something like this. And here's a, a real life example of how to do it. So um, I'm going to ask the question I want to ask, Three Days of the Condor. That's just a rocking, rocking <laughs> movie, that one scene. So um, I've read it. I read that chapter twice in here. Um, cause it was, that was like so cool that your whole story of how, um, you already mentioned now how you, um, got now, what made him decide, what did, um, Pollock, that was the, the uh, director of the Three Days of the Condor, the director? Yes, Sidney Pollock. Yes. And so why did he say, okay, you've got the job? Uh, I don't, I truly don't know. Uh, I, I guess the, the couple of few minutes that we spent talking, 
And I actually, he said, you're a martial artist. And I said, yeah, I'm in the Karate Hall of Fame. Uh, and I'm also a grandmaster in martial arts. So he said, can you do this? And I said, would you, do you want me to do a demonstration? So he said, no, save it, save it. And when we finished the shoot, mm -hmm. I got a call from Robert Redford. And he said, Hank, wait till you see the fight scene. He said, man, it's the best that I've ever seen. And I said, well, Bob, you know. He said, no, no, I'm serious. So, and a couple of people who are martial artists, when they, when they saw the fight scene, uh, said, wow never seen a fight scene that real on film. You know, everything is pretty much stayed. You throw yeah. a right and I'll block with my left and I'll throw a right hand kick and you'll block it. Uh, it wasn't staged at all. You just said stay clear of, I mean, cause you were, you were, you were going full speed on that? Yes, yes. In fact, uh, at one point I throw a kick at Redford uh, he's standing in front of a fireplace and he gets out of the way and I throw the kick with a lot of force and I went through the, the fireplace. It was plywood and my foot was stuck. I couldn't pull my foot. So here I am with my foot up in the air and I had to run around the back of the fireplace to untie my shoe. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, and I, I told Redford, I said, I'm going to throw it full out and I'm going to, and I wound up taking off the mantle off the top of the fireplace with the kick. And then somebody I spoke to, uh, said, Oh my God, that reverse kick that you did, blah, blah, blah. I said, I threw a kick, you know, <laughs> but, uh, it, it it was exciting. Sidney Pollack was an amazing director. And he said, go ahead. Full out, Hank. He said, don't worry about Bob. He's not going to be there. <laughs> I said, okay. In well, fact, you know, he saved my eyesight. Yeah, tell me that. That's a very fa fascinating story. Yeah. Uh when I come into the place to try to get him, uh, there's a close-up on a, on a stove of a pot of coffee and smoke coming out of this pot of coffee. Now, then they were, they were going to do a tight close-up of my face getting the coffee. Redford came out of his dressing room and said, what are we shooting? And he said, it's a tight close-up of Hank's face getting the coffee. And he looked and he saw the smoke coming out of the pot. And he said, wait, 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 whoa, whoa. We're not throwing hot coffee in Hank's face. And Sidney Pollack, the director, said, uh, no. Uh, he said, Bob, you're not even involved in the shot. You know, it's just going to be a close-up of Hank's face. And he called the special effects guy and he said, why is that bubbling smoke coming in? He said, well, it's uh, an acid diluted with mineral oil. And he stuck his finger and said, see, it doesn't burn. And Redford said, what happens if you get it in your eye? The set got very quiet. And then Redford said to Sidney Pollock, can I throw the coffee? He said, no, Bob, it's a tight close-up of Hank. And he said, let, let me do it, please. I said, okay, call me on the side. He said, Hank, I'm gonna hit you waist high. And just put your hands up in your face as though I hit you there. Found out later, had it gotten in my eye, it would have blinded me. Wow. It was an acid. Yeah. 
Oh, it won't burn on my finger. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Wow, that's just an amazing story. So, um, are you still stopped from from people recognizing you from that scene? Oh God, yes, all over the world. What's been? What was the most um, outrageous or the most dramatic reaction to an audience of you as as that postman trying to kill? Robert Redford. Uh, one, I was challenged to see how tough I am. Uh, and then uh, people just just impressed. Yeah. They say, oh, my. In fact, today I, I went to have my hair cut, and a guy said, the postman. Oh, the shoes. And. They remember so much of that that scene. Yeah. No, it's just it just. I don't remember a whole lot else of the movie. To tell you the truth, <laughs> I remember that scene. Thank you. Yes. So um, now you've you've um, done a lot of of movies and a lot of TV shows and whatnot. What's been your? We've talked about Three Days of the Condor. Anything else that um, has been your? would consider highlights for yourself? Car 54, where are you? I'm the only one left from the show. Uh, that gave me the opportunity. Uh, up until then, I was an, an actor playing little parts in different mm -hmm. shows. And Car 54 had made me noticed around the country if not around the world yeah i'm interesting i i used to watch that show <laughs> <laughs> um no it was just i didn't really i was very young so i didn't really understand it a lot but it was just, it was just fun to watch you know you just car 50 where are you and you just, just like the, the old sirens as they like you exactly like <laughs> winding the crank there to get the siren going there you know well the when I'm doing autograph shows, the people come up and say, do you remember the song? Do you remember it? And I said, yes. Oh, they were going to sing it to me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I imagine you would remember that. So um, what was the point that like, you like transitioned from being a hoodlum to not? Oh. I was, oh boy, on the street, and the police were looking for a friend of mine. His name was Lucky. And I did not know where Lucky was. The cops were looking for him, and they pulled me in. And they beat me. They worked me over. Look. Tell us where Lucky is. I said, I don't know. I honest don't know. Bang. They kept working me over. I was a bloody mess. This was still in Harlem on the streets. And finally, a detective came in and he said, uh, tell them. They're going to they're gonna cripple you. I said, I don't know. Don't you think I would tell them? Well, he said, get, get washed, washed up. And I walked home, and there was Lucky. Uh, not, not Lucky, Lefty. I'm sorry. Lefty, they were looking for him. He's standing there playing handball in the schoolyard. I walked over, and I punched him. He said, why did you hit me? I said, that for the beating I took because I didn't know where you were. He said, they beat you? He said, I've been here all day long. He had stolen some food. At one time, my mom, he came up to my mom, and my mom saw him, and the cops were looking for him because he had stolen a loaf of bread. And there was this one cop, and my mother said to him, here's 15 cents, go pay for that loaf of bread. 
he took the 15 cents, paid for the loaf of bread. He had three cents change, which he brought to my mom. And she said, you keep it. She said, if you're hungry, you come to me. You don't go anywhere else. You don't steal. And he never forgot my mom. And everybody on the, on the neighborhood called her mama. And it was that severe that the cops can look to bust you for a loaf of bread. So that, that kind of stayed with me. Mm -hmm. Wow. So that was like your turning point there. Yeah. So on the, um, as we're getting, we got through our last few minutes here. Um, what advice do you have for anyone else with a story to tell, but not certain where to go? If it could happen to me, it can happen to you. God is good. God doesn't make mistakes. Too many people are not, don't see the opportunity or the opportunity ever given to them. I'm not special. Uh, I don't know why I got the breaks that I did. I went through a very tough life with two half-brothers. One brother hung me over the edge of a roof, telling me uh, that I was found in a trash can. No one wanted me. Whoever my mother was left me in a trash can, and the woman who became my mother, who was actually my mother, but this is what I was told by my stepbrother. And I lived with that for the longest time. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the things that I was always angry about, and always fighting, because nobody wanted me. Right. I'm gonna make you know that I'm here. It could have gotten even worse. I could have done something terrible to someone just to be noticed. Mm -hmm. But I was able to turn my life around. I'm, I got my nose busted for the first time when I was nine. A gang member came over and just punched me square in the face, broke my nose. And I could have been one to seek revenge, and I did. <laughs> Later in life, I ran into the guy that broke my nose. He didn't recognize me, and I were ready. I was big, the size of a monster because I was pumping iron and working out all the time. And I walked up to him and I said, you remember me? And he said, I don't know you, man. I said, I'm the kid whose nose you broke. And I was twice his size now. And I look and I say, and now I'm gonna kill you. And he fell to the ground and he started sobbing. Don't kill me, please, man. I'm not, I'm not. And the, he told someone the reason I, that he broke my nose was because I cursed his mother. I cursed at his mother. Didn't even know who his mother was. And I saw him lying there weeping, and I said as I left, oh, and please say hello to your mom for me. And I walked away. <laughs> I had my revenge and didn't have to touch him. Wow. That's amazing there. So... One more time now, the name of your book and how somebody gets it, because it's an amazing book. I, I mean, I highly recommend this. If um, just, it's a great, you know, I'll be showing it on the teaser thing that we're going to be making on this thing too, but uh, from Harlem Hoodlum to Hollywood Heavyweight by Hank Garrett and Deanna Marie Smith. So how does somebody find this? Uh, it would be harlemhoodlum.com. Can she say a word or two? Sure. Yes, if they would like an autographed copy, they can just email me, which is dmredwarrior at gmail.com, and we'll get back to you immediately and see what you want. That's great. And that would, that would be an autographed copy. Like mine. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, this has been great. We've gone through our, uh, we're a little bit over our hour here, which 
I knew it would be very, uh, very much going to happen like that. But um, anyway, um, it's been great talking to yourself. Thank you. Hank, and as well, that last little bit there with you, Dan and Marie. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers of the Future can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere via Amazon.com. We are especially appreciative of our sponsor, Carnation, for supporting this podcast. Carnation has been making delicious milk products for over a century and is still going strong. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elrond Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Hank. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. Absolutely.